0: Welcome to episode seventy-nine of the Bloomsbury English Podcast, where we talk about all things relating to James Joyce's Ulysses. I'm Dermot,
1: and I'm Kelly. How are you doing tonight, Dermot? Pretty good. All right. Well, I am excited. I think this is going to be a really good episode tonight because we finally get to talk about one of the more substantial parts of *Lotus Eaters*. But first, we have some business. First of all, Dermot is the artist for our podcast. If this is your first time listening, we do like to have a, a visual component to this audio medium, but Dermot has done some artwork for this episode, and I'd like him to talk
2: about it.
0: Yeah, it's I've read about this, before we even read Ulysses, I knew about this hadith. It's a story that the Prophet Muhammad was uh, asleep in his tent, being called to prayer, and his favorite cat was also asleep on his sleeve. And so rather than disturb the cat, he was so affectionate for the animal that he cut the sleeve off, so that he ruined his coat. Rather than wake up the creature, and uh, Kelly's smiling because she knows that when one of the cats in this house sleeps on the chair that I my desk at work, I will very carefully wheel it out of the way and sit on a very uncomfortable wooden one. So, and apparently this uh, appears in Ulysses. I was really uh, ple- pleasantly surprised.
1: <laughs> this is, yes, this hadith is mentioned very briefly in this section. I do like that the cat has their paw on a yellow flower, which is also thematically significant. Mm-hmm. I, I think this is one, one of your drawings you've done that most reflects your personality. Just this intersection of cats and Islam, these, these <laughs> things that you you love in your life. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, even though this is mostly irrelevant to what we're going to talk about tonight, you couldn't resist.
0: Can I tell the story about how I got into Islam? Sure. Uh, I was about eight years old, and we had a very cruel teacher. She was horrible. She actually threw a pair of scissors across the room and it stuck in a kid's head one day. That was a few years after I left her class. But anyway, that was the kind of person she was, and I remember her two years I was with her of being very traumatic. But one good thing came out of it. She went on a holiday to Israel, and when she came back from her holiday, she made the mistake of telling us about all the the things she had seen. And uh, all of the Jesus stuff was like, yeah, yeah, whatever and then she told us about islam and was probably the first time she had ever re- really encountered it as well because this is 1977 78 in ireland and it was just like a word like this thing far away and she talked about the, the, the prophet muhammad and the, the the night journey into into heaven she must I think she visited the dome of the rock so she she actually got got to see some stuff that wasn't like judeo christian and even though i was 8 years old i remember thinking this islam thing is way cooler the now our crappy religion, and I want to know more. Send me your, can I subscribe to your pamphlet? <laughs> and and then it was the year after, I think the Iranian revolution happened, and I just started following the the, the, the region a little more closely from a very young age. So it's kind of, I've had a, a graph for it um, mm-hmm. for many years. And I've become more serious about it more recently because, I, you know, in terms of like just looking down and reading some actual books.
1: Are you, are you a practicing Muslim? I am not. I no. would
0: never be. Too strict. It's too mm-hmm. strict for me. I wouldn't be able to handle the 6 a.m. prayers. You know me.
1: Yes. (laughs) snoring
0: is a prayer, I could certainly handle it.
1: You you would be incredibly pious. Mm -hmm. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you, Dermot, for that fascinating little insight. (laughs) We've got a few other items of business, and then we will get to our section here. First of all, if you like listening to us talk about James Joyce, Islam, and everything in between, you can leave a donation at our website, which is...
0: And barnacles.com.
1: And how can they donate? At
0: the top right of the page, there's a little tip button, donate button. So you can send us money through your favorite credit card company or bank account.
1: And if you don't want to leave monetary donation, you can also help us out by rating and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts. It helps people find the show. So if you've got an Apple account, please hop on there and leave one. And if you do, we'll read it on the show. And finally, the last thing we'd ask you to do before we get started is we have a newsletter, which just went out this week. It's a free newsletter and we put links to all of the previous month's shows and blog posts, because we're a blog as well as a podcast in there. And it, it comes straight to your email inbox. So no muss, no fuss, no Zuckerberg in between you and blooms and barnacle goodness. And we include a question of the month in those. The question this month, is pertinent to our show today because it's the question we attempt to answer. But the question is, who is Martha Clifford really? Who do you think she really is? That's kind of the topic of our show today. But feel free to email us those answers or leave them on our social media. And all the ways to get in touch with us will be in the outro at the end of the show. I think that's all of our business, Dermot. Let's move on to the text. We are in episode Five of Ulysses, also known as Lotus Eaters. And if you're following along at home, the text today comes from pages 76 through 78 in my edition of Ulysses, which is the 1990 Vintage International Edition. And before we begin, uh, a brief note, we will talk ever so briefly about suicide in this episode. So if that's something you're sensitive to, we're letting you know. Without further ado, Dermot, read the first paragraph, please.
0: Mr. Bloom stood at the corner, his eyes wandering over the multicoloured hoardings. Cantrell and Cochrane's ginger ale. Aromatic. Cleary's summer sale. No, he's going on straight. Hello. Leah tonight. Mrs. Bandman Palmer. Like to see her again in that. Hamlet she played last night. Male impersonator. Perhaps he was a woman. Why Ophelia committed suicide. Poor Papa. How he used to talk of Kate Bateman in that. Outside the Adelphi in London waited all the afternoon to get in. The year before I was born that was, sixty five, and Story in Vienna. What is this the right name is? By Mosenthal it is. Rachel is it? No. The scene he was always talking about where that old blind Abraham recognises the voice and puts his fingers on his face.
1: Thank you, Dermot. Thoughts on this?
0: Mm. Very messy, isn't it, trying to figure out? what's happening and what's he talking about so again he to, to put this in context he is trying to escape from the clutches of mccoy
1: sure yeah that's the uh no he's going on straight so okay bloom's kind of watching him walk away okay so
0: he's he's finally free of the man now and mm-hmm. he's he's taking in like i guess big adverts uh, ginger ale which i like a uh, cleary summer sale so uh, Cleary's, I think, was sold recently. But at the Cleary's clock is still a well-known feature in Dublin. And I think they're trying to fix the building up and keep it going. I'm not sure. But anyway, the building is still there. Um, so he's going on straight. That's McCoy walking away. I, when he says, hello, Leah, tonight, couldn't tell you. Don't know who Mrs. Bama Palmer is. Uh, I'm inferring she's an actress, singer maybe. Um, Hamlet, she played last night. So again, he's thinking of the stage don't know who the male impersonator is. Um, He's thinking, why, I feel he committed suicide. So again, like Stephen's big into Hamlet. He has his Hamlet theory, isn't he? So this is like a little resonance with Stephen. Hypostasis or whatever Sure, nice use of
1: my favourite word.
0: Um, Now, poor Papa. This is Bloom thinking about his own own father, I assume. Yes. Uh, So how he used to talk to Kate Bateman in that. So, uh, and then so his father waited outside the Adelphi all afternoon. Um, this is before Bloom himself was born. So Bloom is giving us his birth year here. Mm-hmm. Um, let's see. By Mosenthal it is. No idea. Rachel is. That's him like, trying to like pull names up from his memory. Yeah, mm-hmm. we one of that feeling. And then the scene he was always talking about where the old blind Abraham recognizes the voice and puts his finger on his face. I have no idea what that's about. Okay. So...
1: Let's start out our discussion of this by pointing out a lotus. So Lotus Eaters is full of these little things that I'm calling lotuses that are sort of intoxicating or entrancing in some way. And that would be our Cantrell and Cochrane's ginger ale, aromatic, right? It mm-hmm. has an enticing, um, pungent smell. I don't know if pungent's the right word there, mm. but uh, you get the idea. All right, let's talk about Leah. Leah is the name of a play. The full name is Leah the Forsaken. And, yeah, this is really confusing. I find this maybe the most difficult to understand paragraph in this particular episode. And this takes us back to Bloom's missing hour. Do you remember, mm-hmm. do you remember that from our previous episode? Right. That at the end of Calypso, we leave Bloom in, in the outhouse. And at the opening of Lotus Eaters, we see him walking on the keys in Dublin City Center. The idea is there is about an hour of time that's passed between them. What happened then It's a conversation between Bloom and Molly, the details of which are sort of scattered throughout the novel. What he's saying here and what's revealed later as the book goes on, like if, you're, if all you have is this, this is not clear at all. Uh, so Bloom has told Molly that he won't be coming home until late that evening because we know Blazes Boylan is going to go there to meet Molly, for more than just, well, it's a kind of business that they're meeting about. So he tells Molly that he's going to eat dinner out. He won't be home and that he's going to catch a performance of this play, Leah, at the Gaiety Theater. And in, in, um, that's his alibi for not being home. He doesn't want to come home when Boylan is around. So he makes an excuse to just not come home. And he, he wants to say something that feels natural. A lot of commentators will look at this strategy and, and see Bloom as a very passive man. Someone who's kind of allowing Boylan to come in and uh, usurp his his home and his wife. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, Bloom is, is very uh, conflict-averse, I think. And I, I think it's conflict with Molly that he's really concerned about. Although, I mean, maybe they kind of need to have it out because this is a pretty serious thing that's going on. Mm-hmm. But he's choosing to ignore it. He's big on repressing any of these negative thoughts. So this is I the, maybe the most extreme manifestation of that. Right. As you pointed out, Dermot, this is just after he's able to shake off McCoy and Lotus Eaters. And so Bloom's mind here begins to drift to, quote, Leah tonight, Mrs. Banman Palmer, who, yes, is an actress who plays the titular Leah. He's sort of getting his alibi straight in his mind here. So let's talk a little bit about this play. Like I said, it's called Leah the Forsaken. We're going to go over kind of some broad strokes. There's a, more details about this in the Gifford and Sidemen, uh Ulysses Annotated and also at JoyceProject.com. So this is where most of my information comes on this. And those are good resources if you want to read a little bit more. So Leah the Forsaken is a play about a Jewish woman who falls in love with a Christian man named Rudolph which Rudolph is significant because that is the name of Bloom's father there's a, a villain in this called Nathan i think Nathan is actually not mentioned till the next bit so I'll I'll leave Nathan alone for now in any case the role of Leah is was played by many fam- famous actresses of the day including Millicent Palmer or Millicent Bandman Palmer, I believe was her married name, and Kate Bateman, both of whom are mentioned here. If you'd like to see an image of Kate Bateman in the role of Leah, there is one in our show notes, which you can find at bloomsandbarnacles.com. There's also a vintage uh, Cochrane and Cantrell's ginger ale ad. So those are both worth your time to check out. In any case, Mrs. Banman Palmer's performance of Aaliyah was indeed advertised in the June 16th, 1904 issue of the Freeman's Journal. And Mrs. Banman Palmer did indeed play Hamlet at the Gaiety Theater on June 15th, 1904. This was not super uncommon for serious actresses in the 19th century because female roles in Shakespeare, such as Ophelia, were quote comparatively thin according to Gifford and Sidman. I mean if you look at Hamlet, Hamlet has a lot more depth to him than Ophelia or, you know, or right. or Gertrude in that play. So I get, you know, we always hear about how in Shakespeare's day that men played all the female parts and it seems that by the 19th century actresses had the chance to play some of the male parts if, you know, if they if they had enough range. Right. So let's take a look at a couple of these lines here. Hamlet, she played last night. So that checks out. Male impersonator. I think Bloom's making a little kind of a joke here. Like, you know, a, a female impersonator is an old-fashioned way of like, saying like a, a cross-dresser or, a, you know, someone in drag. So same idea. Male impersonator. Perhaps he was a woman. Why Ophelia committed suicide. So, you know, again, kind of a joke here. Maybe, no, Bloom is joking. Maybe... Hamlet was a woman, and that's why Ophelia got so upset about the whole thing and uh, jumped in the lake. And he says, poor Papa, which is Bloom's father, I think you pointed that out, who did die by suicide. And we'll talk about him a little bit more. Yeah, the the bottom part of this then is uh, how he used to talk of Kate Bateman. Um, Just remembers his father loving this play. Um, And then he's trying to remember you know some details about it and he doesn't get them right and then the scene he was always talking about was where the old blind abraham recognizes the voice and puts his fingers on his face so this is a scene from the play. i feel like you you got that paragraph? Yeah. All right. There's a little bit more to it. It's kind of a long paragraph so I broke it up. So let's read just a little bit more.
0: Nathan's voice, his son's voice. I hear the voice of Nathan who left his father to die of grief and misery in my arms, who left the house of his father and left the God of his father. Every word is so deep, Leopold. Poor Papa, poor man. I'm glad I didn't go to the room to look at his face. That day, oh dear, oh dear, foo. Well, perhaps it was best for him. Okay.
1: Any thoughts there? No, well, sad. Like
0: he's remembering his dad and have, uh, uh, you know, much the thing moved him and then he's remembering like his father committed suicide mm-hmm. So uh, yeah we've gone from the chain of thought like he's thinking about Ophelia making a little joke about Ophelia's suicide mm-hmm. and then the real tragedy comes roaring back into his into his mind.
1: Yeah. yeah I think he made kind of an edgy joke about Ophelia and then instantly regretted it mm. because he's experienced losing someone in his family to suicide mm. yeah so let's talk just a little bit about Rudolf Bloom. Rudolf Virag, which is his Hungarian name that he changed to Bloom. Virag means flower in Hungarian, so hence Bloom. Yeah, this is his father reacting to Leah. Bloom remembering his father reacting to Leah in a big way. Like we said, his father seemed to have loved this play. Um, let's talk a little bit about Nathan. So in the story, Leah falls in love with Rudolf. Uh, Leah's Jewish and is Christian. Nathan in the play was a Jew who converted to Christianity um, and then became an anti-Semite, basically. And Leah and Rudolph's romance is kind of a secret. Nathan kind of blows their cover, and then it ends in tragedy. No no spoilers for a hundred-year-old play, but... um, a, a Jew who converted to Christianity would also describe Bloom's father because he was Jewish, um, but then v- converted to Catholicism to marry Leopold's fa- uh, mother, Ellen Higgins, right? So there's a lot wrapped up in this of clearly Bloom's father's complicated feelings about this play, and maybe also some guilt on Bloom's part, maybe feeling like, you know, he he left his own father to die. He left Judaism behind. Bloom has a lot of guilt wrapped up around his father, um, who, like I said, uh, did die by suicide, um, and that's what he's referencing. I'm glad I didn't go into the room to look at his face because this, this, the story goes that his father um, went to Ennis in the County Clare in uh, on the west coast of Ireland, and he rented a. A hotel room and took um aconite poison and you know i think then they contacted his son leopold and then it seems like when he got there he chose not to go into the room to see his his father in death and uh that's a a horrible memory for bloom um who still has a lot of unresolved grief about his father's death which you know speaking of hypostasis is certainly a parallel to stevens unresolved Grief about his mother. Any, any thoughts or questions
2: about that? No, it seemed clear. Okay,
1: well, on to the next.
0: Mr. Bloom went round the corner and passed the drooping nags of the hazard. No use thinking of it anymore. Nosebag time. Wish I hadn't met that McCoy fellow. He came nearer and heard a crunching of gilded oats, the gently champing teeth. Their full book eyes regarded him as he went by, amid the sweet oaten reek of horse piss. They are El Dorado. Poor Jugginses. Damn all they know or care about anything with their long noses stuck in nosebags. Too full for words. Still, they get their feet all right and their dos. Gelded too. A stump of black of percha wagging limp between their haunches. Might be happy all the same that way. Good poor brutes they look. Still, their neigh can be very irritating. Dots. <laughs> He's thinking about being castrated. A mm-hmm. uh, couple of words that I think now he says the uh, uh, where was it? The drooping nags of the hazard. I don't know what he means by the hazard. Hazard is
1: a cab stand. Oh, okay, it's so not the, the cab stand from umeus at the end, but it's a, another hmm. cab stand.
0: Okay, the rest of it's fairly clear. He's just looking at the horses, he's smelling them. Uh, poor Joggins is like, is that like his pet name that he has? I think.
1: Yeah, j- no, a Juggins is a period slang for, like, kind of a, a simpleton. Oh,
0: okay. A yeah. Juggins, okay.
1: Um, I don't know if it would be similar to, like, a, a Muggins. Right. But for, for some reason, oh, it's a Juggins. Juggins. Yeah, it
0: sounds familiar. Uh, and then a stump of black gutta percha. Uh, I'm assuming that's the empty hanging sack where their yeah. fellows used to be. Um, is that, like, an actual word, or is, is it is It period? is an actual word. Okay. I did not
1: include the definition here, okay. but... But yeah, it's a big waving flap down there. Picture that. Yeah, yeah, so a lot of this is uh, imagery about castration. And the good Dr. Freud would have us think that men have a castration anxiety. But what is Bloom's reaction to the stump of black gutta percha wagging limp between their haunches? Oh, that
0: might be handy then you wouldn't be bothered by it. Although I will say in Freudian castration anxiety, the fear is the removal of the penis and not the testicles. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. He'd um, still make something out of it, though. But mm-hmm. yeah, just to clear that up, if there's any Freudians out there yelling mm-hmm. at the speakers.
1: Anyway, Mr. Bloom says, might be happy all the same that way because he has a lot of sexual anxiety about his wife mm-hmm. and boiling, And I think he's kind of thinking, man, that... That feeling wasn't there. It would just, it would just be easier. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we've we've covered most of it. He uh, Bloom will always try to deflect from any really terrible thoughts. So he's thinking about his father's death. He tries to deflect it initially by saying, you know, maybe maybe it was for the best. But I don't think he really thinks that. And so he's like, oh, look at these horses. But the horses are listed in in Joyce's schema as lotus eaters, right? Their their oats aren't their lotus. But they are sort of standing there, you know, blissfully, gently champing teeth. They're just kind of standing there crunching their oats. And so Bloom looks at their example and uses it as a way to kind of ease his mind and and pull his his mind away from those bad thoughts and just think, ah, you know, doesn't seem like it would be so bad to be a, a cab horse. Yeah, look at him there. Good poor brutes they look. Still, their name can be very irritating. All right, thank you, Bloom. I don't have anything more to say. Next.
0: He drew the ladder from his pocket and folded it into the newspaper he carried. Might just walk into her here. The lane is safer. He passed the cabman's shelter, curious the life of drifting cabbies. All weathers, all places, time or set down. No will of their own. Foglio è known. Like to give them an odd cigarette. Sociable. Shout a few flying syllables as they pass. He hummed. La la mano, la 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 la. That. I'm not going to try to do the, the music, so uh, he's he doesn't want to bump into. Is he afraid of bumping into Molly? Might just, just walk? walk
1: into her here. I think he's getting a little thrill out of like any of these people.
0: Could oh, be he, that could be Martha. Yeah. Right, 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 right. So he says the lane is safer. So is he afraid of bumping into Martha?
1: I think like many elaborate sexual games, part of the thrill is that you might get caught. Hmm but also maybe you don't really want to be. Hmm. Yeah, it's kind of both. Mm, okay. Because, yeah, I mean, he goes out of the way to hide, but then he's kind of like, Ooh, hmm. I'm being so naughty. What if someone should
2: see? Yeah. Yeah.
0: And I guess the cabmen, probably the nearest analog today are taxi drivers, but it's a different, you don't have the same kind of chumminess with a ca- taxi driver. Mm-hmm. do you? You're not going to offer them a cigarette, but if there's a cabbie hanging out, and there he is shivering. You're like, the human thing to do. Mm-hmm. Have a cigarette?
1: Mm. Yep. And a cigarette is another lotus.
0: Okay.
1: I won't make you <laughs> sing the, the Don Giovanni, but do you recognize the song? No. Volio Annone? E no. Uh, it's the same song from Don Giovanni that Molly is singing with... Uh, oh. or she's singing it in her her uh, concert in Belfast. Right. And the, the story of that opera is... A, a wealthy man the titular don giovanni is uh, trying to seduce a peasant woman named zerlina and voglio e non means i i would i would like to and no because she's kind of torn and then he sings back to her to try to convince her to say see si. hmm. um and it kind of goes back and forth so it's a song about infidelity okay um and bloom was con concerned that Molly could not pronounce the Italian well enough. So that that line will come up again and again. Let's read the next.
0: He turned into Cumberland Street and, going on some paces, halted in the lee of the station wall. No one. Mead's timber yard. Piled bulks, Ruins and tenements. With careful tread, he passed over a hopscotch court with its forgotten picky stone. Not a sinner. Near the timber yard, a squatted child at marbles, alone, shooting the tall with a cunning thumb. A wise tabby, a blinking sphinx, watched from her warm sill. Pity to disturb them. Mohammed cut a piece out of his mantle not to wake her. Open it. And once I played marbles, when I went to that old dame school. She liked mignonette, Mrs. Ellis's. And mister? He opened the letter within the newspaper. A flower. I think it's a, a yellow flower with flattened petals. Not annoyed then. What does she say? Thoughts. I'm trying to. I don't. My my knowledge of the Dublin streets. I feel I should know where Cumberland Street is. Mm-hmm. It's um, off Westland Road. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think if I, if I'm imagining it right. So his description of it is very different from. I don't I don't remember a timber yard there any time in my life.
1: Yeah, that that area has changed quite a bit because I know the um the Westland Road post office from the opening scenes of this has been demolished and it's now a building owned by Trinity. Right. Um, I don't know that the timber yard is still there.
0: To the um between the church, the old Westland Road Church and Pier Station, mm-hmm. there's that big complex of like um low income housing. It was when I was there anyway. Mm -hmm. Um, So it might be the closest analog to ruins and tenements. Mm. Um, I told you the story about the grave robbing child. Yes. They've been one of the residents there. the
1: previous episode. Yes. Uh, (laughs) So listen to all our episodes if you want to know about the grave robber. A hopscotch
0: with a forgotten picky stone. I don't know what a picky stone is. Couldn't tell you.
1: It's the stone used for hopscotch. When you play hopscotch, you throw a stone and you Mm -hmm. can't step on that. that, That's picky stone. Oh,
0: okay. Okay. Um, shooting th- the taw with a cunny thumb, uh, two two words there again, I do not know. That,
1: that is marbles terminology. Uh-huh. So while I did play hopscotch as a kid, I did not grow up in the 1930s, so I never played marbles. <laughs> oh, then while we're on it, the not a sinner, apparently back in the day, if you stepped on the line in hopscotch, you were called a sinner. Mm. So children would chant, not a sinner, if you could do the whole hopscotch court. Okay.
0: And then, of course, we have the tabby cat, and that mm-hmm. he's that brings back the uh, the hadith of Muhammad. Um, and then he's, I think, he's trying to remember his school teacher's name.
1: Oh, it was Mrs. Ellis? Mrs. Ellis. Yeah. She ran a quote juvenile school that mm-hmm. Bloom attended. He re- he recalls it, I believe, in Ithaca towards the end. A uh, juvenile school would be like a, a kindergarten or a pre grammar school. Right. Is it junior infants. It's called in Ireland? Yeah, to
0: be junior infants, senior infants, and then primary school. Junior infants was from ages four through six or seven. okay, And then senior infants, or was that five and six? Senior infants might be seven. And then primary school after that. Okay. Roughly, approximately. The
1: term senior infants to me is, it's really special. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Anything else?
0: Uh, Then he's opened the the love letter and there's a flower in it. Mm -hmm. And, uh. So that, And then he's relieved because he was worried that he had offended her, if I remember, from the last passage yeah. we read.
1: He yep. also says, not annoyed then? What does she say?
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. We will cover this in our next episode, like our next podcast episode, but Bloom was not so sure she would respond because of something that he said to mm-hmm. her. All right, so let's read that letter. That'll be the, the last thing we look at today, but our discussion of this will be pretty lengthy. So, uh read the letter.
0: Dear Henry. I got your last letter to me and thank you very much for it. I'm sorry you did not like my last letter. Why did you enclose the stamps? I'm awfully angry with you. I do wish I could punish you for that. I called you naughty boy because I do not like that other world. Please tell me what is the real meaning of that word. Are you not happy in your home, you poor little naughty boy? I do wish I could do something for you. Please tell me what you think of poor me. I often think of the beautiful name you have. Dear Henry, when will we meet? I think of you so often, you have no idea. I have never felt myself so much drawn to a man as you. I feel so bad about. Please write me a long letter and tell me more. Remember, if you do not, I will punish you. So now you know what I will do to you, you naughty boy, if you do not wrote. Oh, how I long to meet you. Henry dear, do not deny my requests before my patience are exhausted. Then I will tell you all. Goodbye now, naughty darling. I have such a bad headache today. And write by return to your longing, Martha. P.S. Do tell me, what kind of perfume does your wife use? I want to know. Thoughts? So I, th- the perfume question suggests that she's actually interested in taking it physical because if she's going to be intimate with him, she doesn't want him going home to his wife smelling of another woman.
1: Oh, interesting. I always mm-hmm. thought she wanted to smell like his wife so that he'd be attracted to her. Oh, okay. I've never thought of that. Mm. You're more cunning than me.
0: I've, I've watched TV shows about oh. <laughs> infidelity. <laughs> no, it's like something that gets the first giveaway. The husband comes home, goes into the shower. Mm-hmm. I mean, come on. It's you know? mm-hmm. total fucking tell. So... um. Yeah, women have, I, I think it's fairly well accepted. Women, either they have a better sense of smell or they just notice it more. And men tend to not give a hoot about it for whatever reason. Mm-hmm. Um, it would have to be pretty pretty bad for a man to be bothered by it. So uh, certainly a, a man like him wouldn't even think like that. That's how he would get caught. Um, but he, he for him, it's like the, the, the pl- plum trees, part of the meat crumbs on the bed. Mm-hmm. He knows what that means all right.
1: Yeah, and he's not good at hiding stuff either because he keeps all of Martha's letters in an unlocked drawer in his desk in their home.
0: Like, mm.
1: yeah, Molly could find
2: those.
1: Mm. Not her letters, but um, her address.
0: Mm. Yeah.
2: Yeah,
1: like how to get in touch with her. Yeah, it's like it they is. almost
0: want to get caught. Part of them wants to get caught.
1: Yes. Yes. Because yes. I, I think that there might be some part of him deep down that does want to confront Molly or at least get revenge on her. Mm-hmm. It's just not within his personality to like, you know, burst into the room and say, "Ha ha, you've been <laughs> cuckolding me."
0: <laughs> I shall like, sing in Italian. Mm, yeah, yeah, it's just yeah. not—it's just not his no, style. Like, no,
1: it's—it's—it's not—it's it's, it's not, it's not his personality. And we learn in Penelope too that she—she she thinks something's going on, like something's off. Mm-hmm. Molly, I think, has good intuition.
0: Right. And clearly, they, whatever letters have gone back and forth between these two they're well on the path to a sadomasochistic relationship, uh-huh. and she knows he likes to be spanked, so um, that's, she's clearly like mm-hmm. playing up to that. Her, her use of English is fairly poor, um, you know, if you do not wrote, instead of if you do not write. Um, so, I guess you could speculate on that, like how educated she is, or maybe she's just been careless, or because uh, it's such a basic mistake, it's not the kind of mistake you'd make. You know it's odd. maybe it's a second language speaker who the hell knows. So probably all that done. The I, know, I know
1: you've written what I've, I've, I've you, you've read what I've written
2: about.
0: yeah,
1: this. so yeah yeah, uh, we'll, we'll get to that in a second. We're gonna do two episodes in a row about Martha and her letter because there's just so much here and mm-hmm. I don't want to record a three hour podcast. Oh, okay.
2: um,
1: I kind of did the same on the blog. so if you're dying to know some of it, Go check out our blog. It's all there. And actually, some of this, I'm going to refer you to the blog because there are visual clues that I don't feel like will translate well into a purely audio format. Hmm. But in this episode, before I say that, in our next episode, which will be episode 80, we're going to look a little more closely, maybe at the contents of her letter. Um, But this time, we're going to look at who is Martha? Martha. Because all we know about her right now is that she's named Martha. We learn later she's Martha Clifford. So, I mean, I might use that name as we talk about her. But it's it's one of the great mysteries of Ulysses. Who is Martha? If you have a theory, please send us an email or leave us your guess on social media because we'll read them out in the next episode. But I'm going to float a few theories based on readings that I've done. And I'll tell you at the end what I think. Basically, if you look up who is Martha Clifford in Ulysses, someone out there has speculated about literally every female character in Ulysses at some point. Right up front, I want to say I think there is absolutely no textual evidence for the following people. Lydia and Mina from the Ormond Hotel, Nurse Callan from the the maternity hospital, and Molly Bloom. Like, there are some people who really like the idea that it's like, you remember that Pina Colada song? Mm-hmm. I like piña coladas. hmm Okay, I won't sing anymore. But that song, if you listen to the whole thing, it's a guy who's cheating and he's put out a, a personal ad and then he finds someone who likes the same thing and when they meet together, it's his
0: wife. That happened to a couple in real life a few years ago. And they, were, they just, oh, God, and they just turned around and walked back out. But it's kind of... <laughs> It's kind of sweet in the no, way because that, that, the, the part yeah. the part that they were attracted to is still there, you know? It's mm-hmm. it's sad. It's sad. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So anyway, I don't think that Ulysses is like the Pina Colada song. Hmm. Um, although it's definitely gonna be our outro music. <laughs> Sorry guys. <laughs> For a few reasons. I'm not gonna go too much into it just because I don't I don't think it really works. I mean we, we hear her thoughts on it. And like the the last episode of the book is her thinking about all sorts of things and she doesn't think about carrying on an affair by letters with some mysterious stranger named Henry Flower. Um, also, she does think about how Bloom used to send her inappropriate letters, so I think we could infer that she would recognize his style. I think a lot of my, my theorizing kind of centers around how Bloom met Martha in the first place. And this is revealed in Lestragonian's The Eighth Episode of Ulysses, Uh, in which Bloom reveals that in order to find his saucy pen pal, he had placed an ad in the Irish Times seeking a lady typist. And the ad included the following phrase, wanted smart lady typist to aid gentlemen in literary work. There is no way that Molly Bloom would respond to that. So anyone who was responding to him had to get over the you know, this this gateway to entry, this this threshold of entry, that she would have to be someone, assuming it is a she, she would have to be someone who would respond to a job ad for a smart lady typist to aid a gentleman in literary work. And the bar the the barmaids from the Ormond, Nurse Callan and Molly Bloom are not gonna do that.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: He has received ample replies, around forty-four I believe the number is in Lestragonians, and We have to assume that these 44 women all sent him their CV and Bloom responded with, I'd like to spank you. And why did he choose Martha? As you pointed out, Martha's skills as a typist leave something to be desired. I suspect she's the one who responded. So let's put a pin in that. Let's talk about Martha's typist skills here. Her letter is full of grammatical and spelling and punctuation errors The grammatical errors are of particular interest. She has some gems such as my patients are exhausted, um, which is interesting. If you think of patience, like P-A-T-I-E-N-T-S, and then she mixes that up with the word patience Mm -hmm. with the C E, which is a a curious mistake. And then if you do not wrote, um, even this very key phrase, do tell me what kind of perfume does your wife use is improper in, in grammar. Do tell me what kind of perfume your wife uses is you know, the, the correct um, syntax there. Many commentators who are all very well-educated people with enough money and, you know, ability to go through a PhD program uh, will talk this up to a lack of education or a sign of Martha's low class status. Um, I actually find there's a lot of classism to some of the academic discussion on Martha. It's assumed that she's not very smart and that she's low class and that those kind of go together. Mm. That is um, a a buried premise in a lot of the scholarly discussion of Martha. So there's one kind of shining star in this that stands out to me. And I think this is the, the strongest argument. This is from a scholar named Andrew Christensen. I've linked his article in the show notes under further reading. He makes a very strong case that Martha is not uneducated or incompetent, but instead that she speaks English as a second language. Uh, So I I come at this like my profession is I am a a teacher of English as a second language. So this uh, is right in line with my, you know, my professional abilities. Um, And I find it really compelling because she's a very proficient speaker of English, but the mistakes she makes are not, or I should say, the grammatical and spelling errors are not consistent with the errors that a native English speaker would make. Particularly, that if you do not wrote, right? That native English speakers wouldn't make that mm-hmm. kind of grammatical error. I think it's very possible that she's someone who is struggling with uh, that um, past tense, you know, past simple tense yeah. negative, which yeah. is hard. That's a hard thing to learn because. English grammar is weird and difficult and not always logical. And there are a lot of irregular verbs. And I find with my students that if you do not, if you do not wrote would, would be really a typical error I'd find in my students writing. Um, And so I think that it's, it's fair to conclude that she is a, an English language learner rather than a native speaker with low written competency. Mm -hmm. Tell it what kind of perfume does your wife use? That, that's such a common error for second language, English speakers. Um, so I really like that, that idea. I don't think Mar- Martha is unintelligent. I, I, I think that she's an immigrant and that, you know, she wa- wanted to work as a typist. And for reasons we'll explore in a moment here, she's just kind of rolled with this.
0: Any no, no. I mean, I think uh, what kind of perfume does your wife use? Sounds like normal English to me. It Doesn't sound that far mm-hmm. off.
1: But if she's a smart lady typist, mm-hmm. she, I think, would know. Tell, tell what kind of perfume your wife uses. Right. Or she could ask, "What kind of perfume does your wife use?" in a, a question form. Mm-hmm. It's mm-hmm. it's a very subtle grammatical error.
0: Right. So uh, yeah, we can then write off like it's not lady, like hobnob. It's not Lizzie.
1: It's not Lizzie Twig. Right. right. Who we'll, we'll talk about momentarily. Okay. Um, who was a smart lady typist who responded and Bloom was like, bleh <laughs> didn't want to talk. You didn't want to talk to Lizzie Twig." She won't let me near her bumhole. No, because she's actually an experienced typist. Mm. I actually, I might have cut out the Lizzie Twig material, but she, uh, he imagines her wearing, I think, like lumpy stockings and drinking sloppy tea, or, like it's, it's some unflattering image of. A girl who would take off her glasses in the third act of the movie, you discover she's beautiful. <laughs> but no, he he reads out he like in his mind remembers her uh, CV and it's just like, Ugh. you know, I wouldn't want to listen to her read poetry and drink sloppy tea or whatever. Like he does, he doesn't actually want a smart lady typhus. Like mm. that's his cover. Right. Um. Anyway, so why Martha? Why is he talking to her? Uh. Well, some there's some speculation that we learn later her address is in Dolphin's Barn, which is a area of dublin uh which reminds bloom of molly because they shared their first kiss in dolphins barn um and you know so that would tell us that even as bloom carries out this sort of half-hearted affair he did not intend to meet her i think that's probably for our next podcast episode we'll talk about that but even as he carries out his half-hearted affair with martha he's still mainly thinking of molly and the, the, the line from one of the lines from this that, that recur in his mind throughout the day is, tell me what perfume your wife uses,
2: mm-hmm.
1: you know, the part where she mentions his wife. So I've got two personal ideas about why she's the one that he continues to respond to. Again, remember, these these letters are that he's receiving or that they're exchanging, I should say, are in response to a job ad. This is kind of the nineteen oh four equivalent of responding to a job post on LinkedIn and receiving a dick pic in return. I wouldn't like that, but you know I'm not everyone. But yeah, it's it's a it's a pretty ugh, just sleazy move on Bloom's part. Mm. Like let's just be very direct. It's it's gross. There are two possibilities. You know any any serious candidates wouldn't respond back to his. Uh, you know, sec, kind of sexually charged letter. So why does Martha keep responding? Um, you know, I think that's the main reason why Martha is just because she continues to respond and continue responding and the others probably dropped off because they're looking for a gig as a typist or a secretary or something mm-hmm. like that. And this creep's not going to give it to him. So I have two theories about why Martha continues to respond. Do you want to hear the fun one or the sad one first? Fun first. Fun first. Uh, my first thought is, is that, you know what? Martha, she's a, a bit of a pistol. She's going she's to hold her own, and she's maybe kind of kinky like Bloom, and she's she's into it. She wasn't expecting it, but she's she's enjoying it. She's having fun writing back back and forth with them. That's the fun answer. Mm-hmm. She likes it. Um, she's, she's a little freaky, and that's all right. We, we support that here at Blooms and Barnacles. Mm-hmm. All right, do you want the sad one? Sure. I think she may be holding out for a job offer. She if she's especially if she's an immigrant, she may really need the money mm. and believe that indulging the sexual narcissism of this powerful man, Henry Flower Esquire, is the only way uh, for a working class gal to gain a foothold in a middle class business. Mm. And so she's not into it, but she's going along with it because she thinks that will help her get this job mm. like she still thinks the job's in play. And so she's, she's rolling with it, even though he's saying a bunch of creepy stuff to her and she, she holds up her end of the act, Mm -hmm. which is, I find sad because it's gross and sleazy. And also like, she's, there's nothing for her to gain then. Like if she's not into it and she's just trying to get that typist job and she's like, this is the hoop I got to jump through. You know, it's hard out here because there's no job at the end of it. Bloom gets his thrill, but she gets nothing. So... There's no way to tell which is more likely. We know almost nothing about Martha. We don't even know if that's her real name. And even Bloom acknowledges this in a a later episode. So that really opens the door for wild speculation. And that's what we're going to do now. We're going to set that depressing stuff aside um, about hierarchies and class dynamics and uh, sexual dynamics. We're not going to look at that. We'll look at some of that next time. But let's speculate wildly about who Martha Clifford is. Again, I don't think she's the a barmaid from the Ormond Hotel. I don't think she's a head nurse of maternity hospital, and I certainly don't think she's Molly Bloom. So, one, two, three—I burst all your bubbles. So, <laughs> all right.
0: Don't worry, if she bursts my bubbles all the time.
1: That makes me sound mean. No. Oh. <laughs> I just, I, you know. When
0: they deserve to be burst, you burst them. Solar <laughs> is too.
1: He bursts my bubbles too, mm-hmm. but he inflates many, many more.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: All right. So our first speculation here takes us back to the court of King Henry II. Oh, the Plantagenets. The Plantagenets. Uh, Henry II had an affair with a woman named Rosamond Clifford, which corresponds to Martha Clifford. And he- King. Henry corresponds with Henry Flower. So Henry and Miss Clifford.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: You with me so far? Yep. Um, This is based on an article I read. You can find it in our show notes. So I'm not just pulling this out of my behind. (laughs) It gets gets weird from here on out. Um, Henry II's family name was?
0: Plantagenet.
1: Which came from a term... For a sprig of broom worn in the brim of a hat. So a little sprig in your, your brim. Mm-hmm. Uh, note that Bloom hides the card bearing Henry Flowers' name in the band of his own high quality hat. Uh, Henry's wife was?
0: Eleanor of Aquitaine. Who was? Catherine Hepburn in the movie with uh, Peter O'Toole. She's Catherine O2.
1: Hepburn. I will always see her as Catherine Hepburn. She's a tough lady.
0: <laughs>
2: yes,
1: Eleanor did not suffer fools lightly. and She really had no time for Henry's infidelities, dalliances, and other bullshit. So Henry took Rosamond and hid her in a labyrinth. So some of this is, is uh, maybe not like factual
0: history. I think fake chronicles, maybe. Yeah. yeah.
1: Eleanor, being the uh, the, the br- brassy gal that she was, uh, she was very clever, and she eventually found Rosamond. and details from this point forward vary depending on who the storyteller is. But let me assure you, it did not end well for Rosamond. And in Circe, the 15th episode of Ulysses, Henry Flower appears in the guise of a serenading troubadour. And Eleanor, prior to her marriage of Henry, was a patroness of troubadours. So that's one little shred of evidence if you're into this. Mm. That labyrinth idea, I think it is key to what I think ends up being the correct response to this. Um, because you have to go through a, a maze of uh, code. Hmm. All right. Next popular guess is Miss Dunn. Uh, she is a, occupies a less lofty place in history of literature. She is Blaze's Boylan secretary, who makes a brief appearance in the episode Wandering Rocks. She is a smart lady typist, after all. And that connection to Boylan is narratively satisfying. However what i think disqualifies miss dunn there are two things number one is that she actually is a smart lady typist we see her um being thoroughly skilled and competent at her work so it seems very unlikely that she would make martha's non errors the second the second and much stronger reason it's definitely not miss dunn Stuart gilbert in his 1930 ulysses study uh which is a The first reading guide for Ulysses, which Joyce had a heavy hand in writing. Gilbert says straight out that Miss Dunn is an intentional red herring to obscure Martha's identity. So it's it's not it's not her. I have nothing more to say. She's just a lot of people think it's her. Uh, Gertie McDowell is our next candidate. Do you know who Gertie McDowell is? I don't She is a young woman who Bloom masturbates to. on. Oh, of course. Uh, There's almost like a Shakespearean element to these two, right? So that, that kind of fits in with Ulysses. There's that undercurrent. Uh, Hamlet was really a woman. And mm-hmm. Ophelia was, you know, had lesbian panic, I guess. Mm-hmm. So there, there's a Shakespearean element to these two, carrying on a sexy epistolary affair with hidden identities, culminating in Bloom, <laughs> straight out of Shakespeare, uh, masturbating to her exposed legs on Sandy Montstrand, neither aware of their true connection. <laughs> it's not like the least shakespearean thing <laughs> the queen would not be amused right. uh like the affair with martha gertie and bloom's encounter takes place entirely at a distance and without touch right which i think there is an, an element of kinkiness to that that mm-hmm. titillates them even bloom himself wonders about this possible coincidence he remembers a fragment of Martha's letter as he speculates about Gertie during the Nausicaa
0: episode. Then I will tell you all, still it was a kind of language between us. It couldn't be. No. Gertie, they called her, might be false name, however, like my name and the address Dolphins Barn a Blind.
1: All right, so Bloom suspects that because his name is fake and his address is fake, that Martha's name is fake and her address is a blind as well. Mm-hmm. So he's suspicious. I mean, yep. you know, that, that's classic projection, right? Mm. Interestingly, in the episode Cersei, Gertie is called out by a character called The Baud. So could you read that exchange?
0: The Baud, Leave the gentleman alone, you cheat. writing in the gentleman false letters, streetwalking and soliciting. Better for your mother take the strap to you at the bedpost, hussy like you. Gertie to Bloom. When you saw all the secrets in my bottom drawer, she pauses sleeve, slobbering. Dirty married man, I love you for doing that to me.
1: But it seems to confirm, hmm, Gert, you know, Gertie's the one writing those letters.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Well, hmm, the events of Cersei are always interesting, but they do occur in Bloom's dreamlike subconscious. There is a danger in ascribing too much objectivity to them. Mm. They are definitely a window into Bloom's version of events. We see his paranoia, particularly pertaining to Gertie. Um, There's guilt intermingled with arousal at the memory of his own lascivious behavior. And here I think he is scrambling, at least subconsciously, for an answer to the puzzle that is Martha. But I don't think this is, you know, a smoking gun. Yeah,
0: because if this comes out of his head, then Mm -hmm. it's only what he can know. It's not objective,
2: right?
1: Right. There is far more evidence against Gertie being Martha than for. So like the, the, she has some superficial similarities with Martha, but we get to hear Gertie's internal monologue pretty thoroughly in the lead up to the, you know, the fireworks scene.
2: Hmm.
1: Gertie, we know, prefers to handwrite her love letters in violet ink rather than type them like a smart lady typist would. Uh, given Gertie's worldview... It seems unlikely that Gertie would be looking for a position as a typist. She definitely wants to be, you know, a wife and mother. Gertie herself says that she prefers, quote, a man among men rather than a, quote, naughty boy like Martha seems to like. I don't think Ger- Gertie would play that that silly little game. She's clearly a sexual being, uh, but I, I think she'd be turned off by the erotic content of Henry's letters. It's, it's just not her style. It's it's clear that Henry wrote something that crossed a boundary in the last letter. As, you know, we mentioned, he concludes Martha's not annoyed with him since she responded. And given Gertie's sensibility, I th- I just think she'd be really turned off by the crassness and the power dynamic in Henry's letters. She's very, ro- I, I know you haven't read the section, Dermot. She's very romantic. Mm-hmm. A lot of her ideas about love and romance and, you know, marriage come from these sort of like treacly Popular novels for girls and women about romance and love, like right, right. you know, she wants to find her one true love and you know get married and mm-hmm.
2: uh,
1: keep a nice little house. Punishing a naughty boy who's so disobeyed her is not exactly fodder for one of her romantic fancies. Let's very quickly talk about Peggy Griffin in Circe again. Martha directly states her identity. Could you read this line,
0: Martha? sobbing behind her veil. Breach of promise. My real name is Peggy Griffin. He wrote to me that he was miserable. I'll tell my brother that Beckett of back on you, heartless flirt. All right, any thoughts on that? All right. <laughs> <laughs> you enjoyed reading
1: that, though? Yeah. Um, there's no character in Ulysses called Peggy Griffin. So let's turn to a folkloric source to fully understand this reference. There's a, an Irish folk tale about a jilted woman named Peggy Griffin who, in some versions of it, performs a black mass to curse her former lover. However, she is cursed in turn and is formed, is, and is forced to walk the earth, and in some versions of the story, to spend eternity stealing potatoes to fill her belly. Peggy is an inhabitant of the other world, which Martha says that she dislikes. And I will note, I realize that when she says, I do not like the other world... That's probably a typo. We'll cover that in episode 80 of Bloom's Barnacles. You know, since it's likely Bloom doesn't plan to meet Martha uh, or fully reciprocate her feelings, she is on her way to being spurned by a, quote, lover. Bloom does have his potatoes stolen in Cersei uh, as well, though it's done by Zoe, who is very unlikely to be Martha Clifford. You know, she's another one. It's not Zoe, guys. Peggy Griffin and her rugby playing brother are both figments of Bloom's subconscious, so while he has the potential to do some psychic damage to Bloom, uh, the Vective-Rugger fullback is unlikely to cross Bloom's path in Waking Life. Alright, so I'm going to tell you what I think is probably the correct answer, and you're going to hate it, um, because I'm basically going to go tell you to read our blog post about this. This is a very long episode, but in Ithaca, the penultimate episode of Ulysses, Bloom reveals that he has, in his unlocked drawer in his desk, Martha's address at Dolphin's barn, written in what he describes as a reserved alphabetic, booster punctuated, quadrilinear cryptogram falls pressed, which is, it's a type of cipher, it's a code, um, when Bloom mentions Molly, or, uh, excuse me, Martha's letter in Lestragonians. He also mentions a code. This is the code it's revealed in Ithaca. It is very hard to explain without a visual, but if you go to our blog post version of this, which is called the secret life of Martha Clifford, Dermot has done some great animations to explain how it works. It involves a labyrinth. Um, (laughs) and, but I do think this reveals the true identity of Martha. Uh, you know, you'll have to read the blog post or just look it up in Ithaca and try to crack the code yourself. It's actually a really easy code, but um, there is an error within the code that tells you who, who Martha is. Um, and I'm going to be that coy about it. I promise this is not a bold uh, attempt to just get you to go look at my dumb blog. But if I just tell you, I think it'll be unsatisfying. It's way... It's, you, you'll enjoy learning about the code and cracking the code more. Um, but because of this, there's one last theory that I'm going to, um, debunk. And I, this is another popular one, but this code, this, uh, reserved alphabetic booster phodontic punctuid quadrilineal cryptogram, vowel suppressed, has given the rise to the theory that Martha is actually some puckish agent of mischief just fucking with Mr. Bloom. Um, and the main prime candidate for that is one Ignatius Gallagher, Uh, Gallagher is a famous journalist and a main character in the Dubliner story, A Little Cloud, though not in Ulysses. In Ulysses, we see him painting the town red with Richie Goulding and later being admired for his journalistic prowess by one Miles Crawford. So the theory goes is that Ignatius Gallagher is writing these letters to Bloom as a prank and keeps writing back dirtier letters like kind of escalating it and then he and his friends are off reading oh look what he wrote he says he wants to be spanked <laughs> this idiot I I do not think this is it it's incredibly far fetched it's fun to think about but look the, the gateway to entry for all these people is that they would have had to look in the Irish Times and see a job ad for wanted smart lady typists um, to you know Aid in gentleman's literary work, and it is inconceivable to me that anyone would look at that and think this is a blind for some guy that we know who's trying to write sex letters to a woman, and we're going to write them instead, and then re- he'll think he's writing a lady, but he's really writing a writing yeah. to us, and then we're going to make fun of him. I just think, while you know, Ignatius Gallagher, you know, might do that if he knew it was Bloom. Mm-hmm unless he somehow has figured out bloom's little ploy mm. it's just it's it's impossible to me that yeah this this work
0: so again how would a person find the article with the animation what was the title of that
1: the secret life of martha clifford and you can google that phrase and ours comes up or you can go to bloomsandbarnacles.com and in the show notes for episode 79 entitled martha there's a link do, do you remember doing the animation for I that? do, oh, I do. Yeah. And I, like, I, I read articles that have a stationary explanation of it, and until we made that animation, mm-hmm. I think it, it, I found it difficult to understand in its, mm-hmm. uh, right, you know, in the way it was in the, the journalist, or the academic journal.
0: Right. Yeah.
1: But we are not going to reveal that. If they want to reveal it, where can they go?
0: Limbs
1: That's all. Um... <laughs> Do you have any, any closing thoughts Dermot? No, no. No, it's
0: all interesting.
1: So, I'm sorry if I've I've disappointed you by saying if you want to know go read my blog, but you'll you'll see why if you actually do it. It's uh I am normally happy to just tell you what to think, but not today. There's 78 other episodes where I tell you to think what to think, and this one is mostly me telling you what to think, so you'll have to forgive me. All right, until then. Bye-bye. Bye
2: was this letter I read If you like me to colons...
1: Podcast Your support means the world's west. You can subscribe to Blooms and Barnacles on Apple Podcasts, Google Play Music, Stitcher, Spotify, or any other place you listen to podcasts. You can also stream our episodes at our website, bloomsandbarnacles.com. That's bloomsandbarnacles.com. If you've enjoyed our podcast, you can do one of three things to help support us. Number one, please donate at bloomsandbarnacles.com. The PayPal donate button is at the upper right-hand corner of the page. This helps us pay for coffee and for hosting fees. Two, rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or the podcast app of your choice. This helps more people find our show. And Three, share us with a friend who you think would enjoy Blooms and Barnacles. Blooms and Barnacles is also a blog. We post new articles and original artwork semi-regularly at bloomsandbarnacles.com. Never miss an update by following us on social media. Search for our group Blooms and Barnacles Podcast on Facebook or follow us on Twitter at BarnacleCast. You can also send us an email at bloomsandbarnacles at gmail.com. That's bloomsandbarnacles at gmail.com. We met some of our favorite podcast friends through random emails and social media DMs. We'd love to hear from you too, so don't be afraid to shoot us a message anytime. We'll be back in your feed in two weeks. Bye for now.